sure. Yeah. Sounds good. Anyway, how are you doing? Yeah, pretty well. Pretty well. Yeah. And it's uh, we had our first snow here a few days ago, and it's absolutely beautiful. <laughs> I don't know many people that would say the same in most other places. This is a very unique perspective you have. <laughs> absolutely beautiful snow. No, oh, it's. I mean, it's great. Are you more of a winter sports person or um, more of a summer person? I think definitely summer. I I love the cold. I love the snow, but I don't know yeah. how to ski or snowboard or skate. I really don't know really? any winter sports. You're just one of those unique people that like the temperature. Yeah, I think it's super nice, Like especially when you go from the outside to the inside and it's really cozy. Oh, That's the best part. okay. But, yeah. Isn't there like a, a word? I'm not sure what country, but it's a word for like, just like that perfect level of comfort. There's some country that has like this word. Yeah. It could be like some Scandinavian one. Like they always have. Uh, yeah. Yeah. They always have some, I don't know. It's just a very, I, I, I found it out we, uh, like a few years ago. I was like, oh, that's, there's no word like that in the English language, right? Yeah. And so all these languages all have like something that isn't present, like someone who has like, uh, who can speak multiple languages is always like, oh, I don't know how to say it in English, but it's like, it doesn't actually exist in English. I always misunderstood that. Yeah. D is English your uh, native language or do you, do you speak anything else? I speak other languages, but uh, English is what I, I usually focus on. Okay. Or I, I've been speaking English since I was a kid. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I find it's always different perspectives people have if you grow up with another language and then pick up English down the line versus people who uh, yeah. grew up with English. Because, I mean, it, I grew up with English. I speak another language uh, too, but I know my ability to explain the logic behind English is non-existent. It's just, oh yeah, it just makes sense because that's all you've ever spoken your entire life, right? Yeah, 100%. Like the way our vowels work. When the A and A-N in front of vowels versus if there's an H and then only if, if the H is silent, then it doesn't count. So you use A-N and it's just like, I can understand how people are like, you know what, I'm just going to speak a ver broken version of this. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's fair. I mean, at the end of the day, it's about just being uh, understood. Like that's all language is. You're communicating to someone else. And if they understand yeah. you and you understand them, you're good. And if that doesn't work, just hand gesture your way into an understanding <laughs> you know exactly well thank you for coming on and taking your time what time is it over there right now uh it's uh just after two in the afternoon two in the afternoon and if i got it right you're in, in switzerland right now right yep uh right near zurich and think what for north american standards is a small town uh called winter tour <laughs> but here it's the sixth largest city in the country <laughs> which i guess would be the equivalent of something like kitchener in uh canada <laughs> yeah i don't know <laughs> how do you know the size is that too much is that too much uh to ask how big the kind <laughs> i think it's like 100 it's just enough 110 or something it's not a lot of people okay even zurich is like 400,000 or 500,000 Right. Oh, it's enough for a soccer game. So hey. <laughs> that kind of works, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, but yeah, thanks for coming on. And I'm really excited to have you on, actually. I do want to start from the beginning a little bit. So I just, just to introduce you to the people who are listening. This is Nick. And I got introduced to him from a friend of mine, uh, Dimitri. And he is doing a lot of things, which we'll discuss today. And, uh, but first and foremost, I do want to talk about your interest in closure and why you decided to 
you know, get into that language? Yeah, uh, I mean, that's a good question. And I think it goes back to some point when I was in university. I was studying business at the time, and right. I wasn't particularly happy with uh, my choice of studies. Uh, I mean, in hindsight, I'm, I'm glad I took it. But at the time, I wasn't really sure that it would lead me to a job I like. So I started uh, tinkering a bit with programming. Right. And first, I went into the realm of Java. This is a language that I learned a bit in high school, and I had some familiarity with. Like, I saw you could make cool desktop applications, and that led me to a few small contract gigs where, for like small businesses, I would make simple desktop apps to automate their workflows in, in storefronts and things like that. Nothing really fancy, but it was kind of like the introduction that got me into programming in like a more serious way. And right. at some point, I think, yeah, over 10 years ago at this point, but I thought, okay, it really feels like the web is the future. Building applications isn't so much about desktop apps these days. It's more about building things that, that people can access from their phones that they can access from anywhere. Right. And I really didn't like JavaScript. So I just started looking around, okay, what's something that can run both on the client and on the back end, like both front and back end. And there's many options for that, of course. But the thing that I think attracted me to code. Now there is anyway. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. mean, especially nowadays, I think there's a ton, but even back then, I think, yeah, I think you could even do it. Uh, anyways, uh, there was a bunch of stuff, but closure was the one that I found in this one Red Monk post in, oh no, maybe that, that came afterwards, but I, anyways, I remember reading something about like expressive languages, languages that you can do a lot with little code. Right. And that was super appealing to me because the thing that I started getting annoyed with in Java was like, I kept repeating myself. I kept writing the same boilerplate and I, I knew there was an easier way to do this with less mental overhead. I just didn't know right. how because I just am like a junior at that point. Uh, so then that led me into Clojure. I think it was the combination of the two. I wanted an expressive language and I wanted to write web applications. Right. And then after just I think it was a lot of bashing my head against the wall because especially back then there weren't a lot of resources available to you. There were some quite good ones, but not the depth that we have nowadays uh, in the closure community. Right. And that, that eventually led me to introduce it to the company that I was working at at the time. And it just grew from there. So how long did it take you to learn it that better way? Because a lot of people, you know, they get nervous about getting into programming. And then uh, they stop at some point. But I feel like if you just keep going, you can get to a level that you're happy with. So how did, long did it take you to get there? To, to get to a point that I was happy with, I think probably took a ton of time. There's definitely a combination of uh, uh, feelings of uh, you're not good enough or I'm not, uh, like I'm not qualified for this. I haven't uh, taken a formal education in uh, uh, computer science. So, I mean, those doubts are always there, but the one piece of advice I give anyone that's trying to learn coding is to have some sort of project, something that you want to build. And when you do that, you can, even if it's terrible, even if the code that you write is total garbage and a few years back, you look at it and you're like, what did I do here? As long as you have some motivation to build whatever it is, you're going to find a way to make that happen. And I know for me, I 
around those years, I really was interested in tennis and specifically betting on tennis matches. Okay. I, I don't know which came first, but either way, it got me really into like the math behind it. Which came first, the tennis or the betting? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I, I genuinely <laughs> don't remember if it was like I started uh, because now I follow tennis uh, almost religiously, but I don't know back right. then if I did. I think it's oh, like one kind of fed off of the other. Uh, okay. <laughs> it, it, but that that for me was like this project that just kept going in the back of my mind and was the thing that drove me to learn more first in Java. I learned how to scrape websites, uh, how to use uh, Postgres, uh, SQL databases, like all these things kind of built on each other that I would later use. But that one project was the one that really kickstarted my like experience with programming and right. pushed almost everything else afterwards. Cool. So having a project, I think, is really the key. But how long did it take me? I, I don't know. I, I would say it was years before I felt confident in, in my right. abilities. <laughs> how long did that project take you, the, the tennis betting project? Oh, that was like an ongoing thing. But I spent, a, uh, I think, when it's maybe my second year or third year of undergrad, I, yeah, probably second. I didn't have a summer job, so I spent all summer like fully focused on that. Working on it. Wow. Like that got pretty good for a while. And for a while it was making some money. I didn't really put much into it. It was more for the fun of it. Right. At some point it started decreasing. My guess is that like probably algorithms also got better at the same time and <laughs> they were doing yeah. a better job of earning money for the bookies than my system could could keep up. But uh, so it took me about a summer to like make something that kind of worked and then i kept refining it over the years so like i built ones later when i started learning closure it was a way for me to learn in a new language with something that i was already kind of familiar with and excited mm -hmm. uh, about even though i didn't really think it would go uh, anywhere at that point it was more just for learning and interest so you always had it such that uh whatever you were building had some monetary return on it or that just happened to be the first thing you wanted to do. Uh, and then you just did it. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say like I recognize there's this association with betting and uh, you're looking to like get something, uh, some money out of it. But that wasn't so much the aim for me. It was, right. I don't know, maybe I saw a, a movie or something like excited me at that time about like, oh, sports betting. That's that's super cool. Right. I, I, it was more, how do I deal with these probabilities? How do I implement this in in code? And then right. things just kind of cascade after that. Like, oh, you can scrape websites. That's super cool. I can get data off of different things. Uh, so the monetary part really wasn't important. I don't think I made much money off of it at all. So it yeah. really wasn't uh, the goal. Okay. And then definitely the things that I've done on the side, or at least for myself, haven't had that in mind. But Okay. So... I suppose you built all this in Java and then you were able to leverage this to build it in Clojure. And then if I look here, you really got into Clojure and became an organizer for Clojure North in, uh, in Toronto. So could you talk a little bit about that and why you started to do that? Yeah. So let me think. That's like uh, <laughs> a long time uh, period uh, yeah. happened. But, but uh, yeah, I really got into Clojure. The closure community in Toronto is absolutely amazing, uh, and I think even globally, uh, it's it's a super friendly and in inclusive community. 
so I really wanted to help and get involved the more and more I was involved. So at some point, I think we were talking during the meetups. Um, you know, we have them once a month. Uh, they're still going around. Even, even though I'm not in Toronto, I would recommend anyone that's listening that is to go and attend. And we, we just started talking, hey, you know, like there's all these uh, events going on around the world. And man, I always want to go to one of these conferences. Uh, but uh, it's, uh, traveling's like difficult or some people didn't have the means. Some people didn't uh, like to travel. So we started saying, why don't we host one here? Like we have people that are really passionate about organizing events. Uh, some of us have organized workshops before. Closure Bridge was also, uh, we had a Closure Bridge Toronto. Uh, so. Okay. We had some experience, not a lot, and I think we definitely underestimated the difficulty of running a conference. Yeah. Uh, but it was enough to get us excited and say, "Okay, let's do this thing." Uh, and then okay. I really kickstarted that, um, set up, you know, the nonprofit for it, uh, did all the paperwork, and uh, that was really awesome. I really enjoyed doing that. Uh, the conference for I think it was two years that we ran it. Right, right. And you ran it for two years, and then is anyone else? Did anyone else take over, or is it sort of in hiatus? I I think it's in hiatus at the moment. Uh, it's possible that uh, it, it will come back in the future, but I'm not involved because I don't live in Toronto anymore. Okay, so uh, I want to talk a little bit about what it was like to have sort of a context in business, and then move into the dev space. And uh, just talk about the, sort of what your perspectives were with the conversations we were, you were having sort of with your peers and what was it like to, I would hope, sort of understand both sides and still be able to communicate some of the concerns. I don't think I appreciate the value of a, a business education and background uh, in tech until having gone through many years of being in tech. Because nowadays, I find that the ability to communicate within your team on a technical level is important. But what's arguably just as important is communicating with people outside of your team and in other parts of the company that aren't technical and being able to understand what they're saying, but also translate technical concepts to them. Uh, in a way that's meaningful and important to them that shows you that shows the value that your team is doing that shows the value that you guys are offering the company right and that i i think a lot of us in tech struggle with that and like i often get super into the the details of things but the business background kind of keeps me grounded in that side of it like i i realize that for everything that we're doing there has to be some sort of monetary aspect to it because that's the way the world works and you need to hire people and pay them. So you need to justify why are they there and what's the value that they're bringing to the company. Uh, so I think that aspect is super valuable. But starting out, I didn't feel that way. I was, uh, I would say, a deer in the headlights in some regards. Like people would say certain terms and phrases and words, and I, I had no idea what the heck it meant. On what side? On the, on the technical side. Like there were so many things that... Especially as a self-taught programmer, when you don't go to a computer science program, you don't pick up these things as part of like a course. You would have to consciously find a way to do that. And when some coworkers might say certain terms, you'd be like, I have no idea what that means. At first, it's, you might feel like embarrassment or a bit of shame. I definitely 
did, like a feeling, oh, I don't belong here. I, and I think that the thing, for me at least, what pushed me to get beyond that was just asking, like, and I do it now to this day, especially like, even if I don't understand something, I'm not shameful of like, I'm sorry, like, I don't know what that means. Tell me what recursion means, or I don't know. Uh, like, tell me about linked lists. Uh, I, I want to understand more. That sounds super cool. Like, it doesn't have to be, you don't even have to say it in like, oh, I, I don't know this. Uh, I'm, I'm so bad. Uh, you could phrase it in such a way that shows that you're interested in the topic and that you know that they have a lot of knowledge and you want to hear more about it from them. So that's a great way of learning these things I found uh, when I was starting and even to this day. Did you find that you had pretty supportive uh, coworkers when you were having these sort of uh, inquiries? Uh, yes. And yeah, I mean, I think my coworkers were, yes. <laughs> but I didn't have a lot of experienced coworkers around at the time. Uh, I started right. at a very small company. So there was someone there who did a lot of coding for internally for, for like tooling. And then there was another team outside that the company outsourced uh, software development to. And they had lots of uh, knowledge, but weren't very good at communicating it. Right. I wouldn't say that it was a necessarily the easiest environment, but I think any environment you can get uh, that kind of information, of course, uh, from your coworkers. But of course, I think you need to, especially if you're starting by yourself, you need to push yourself to learn these things outside of work. Right. For me, I remember at some point I joined a reading group in Toronto that was going through the structure and interpretation of uh, computer programs. I think that's what it's called. Yeah. Uh, yeah, SIGP yeah. SDIC. Is what it's called. Yeah. SNTC uh, or something? SIGP, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, something, yeah, SIGP. Super solid. I don't think I ever finished the book. Yeah, it's good. But going through those problems taught me a lot of these fundamentals in computer science that I think you right. would learn at a undergraduate program. So that like that's just an example. But doing things like that also outside of work helps. Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, it does. There's actually a follow up to that book that I uh, oh, yeah. that's pretty good. And uh, I was working somewhere and someone ordered it, and I was like, oh, I didn't know there was a follow up to that book. So I thought that was cool. So uh, was this all at uh, uh, Synchronous? Is this where you, where you first started your career? Yep. Yeah. So I think when I joined Synchronous, it was a very small company. It was three of us full time working there. And then it grew to, I think it's, it was well over 20 when I left. Right. Uh, so there was like a, a period of growth for the company. A lot of it had to do with the fact that we were taking the tech that uh, we first outsourced to other developers and bringing it in-house and growing that, helping automate the process, giving more power to to the team to do what they're doing best, which is in the case yeah. of synchronous consulting. Uh, so it, it was a market or is a market research company and giving the researchers the ability to do their jobs more efficiently and find deeper insights using the tools that we had was, I think, I think what pushed the company to grow uh, over those years. Did you, uh, as you like sort of moved forward with your career, what did you think that the people on the, the sort of project management side or business side, what did you feel like they kind of missed about people who were on the engineering side where there, there could be a miscommunication that's, that occurs frequently? Right, yeah. All right. I remember the biggest one was 
at least as I be, uh, I think in the last two or three years of my time at Synchronous, when I was the VP of tech there, justifying why my team exists, like what value <laughs> we're bringing, because you have all of these tools and systems in place that we've built over the years. It was like a full from start to finish in the market uh, research sphere, collect surveys, analyze data, spit out reports, write, like everything in between. So there was a lot there. Mm -hmm. And at some point it started being like, okay, so all of these things already exist. Like, why do we need so many people? Why, why do we need to maintain tools? What's the ROI on that? So justifying the dollar amounts of having the people for that. I think that's a difficult thing at first, especially if like things are working. But then also if things are not working, you also you have to justify why they're broken. All right. So it, it's a difficult uh, act at companies that aren't tech focused. And I think in, since I've, uh, so it's been maybe two years or three years since, two, yeah, two years since I've been at Synchronous, but their mindset has also started shifting in the time since, and they've now split up into a bit of a tech company and uh, the market research company. So it's two instead of one. That's an interesting thing because so sort of you have something that you built or anything. If you have a car, you got to maintain it. If you got whatever it is that you've, there are other things that people purchase that they have to maintain. So what makes this such a hard thing for sort of this other side to understand? Is it that, is it an operations cost optimization where they're trying to slice or are there other things there that, you know, that may not be obvious that make it a little bit tougher for them? to see the justification of the cost or for uh, for people on the tech side to see why they would want to push in this direction? Yeah, I, I mean, I think you make a good point. It's uh, like you maintain a lot of things in your everyday life uh, that you purchase. But I, I think the car analogy is a great one because sometimes it's difficult for, especially if you have people in their 40s or 50s on from the business side who worked at corporate jobs all their lives mm. to understand that technology is like that too dependencies become outdated your systems might get vulnerable you need to maintain that also the the processes of the company change the people who i worked with uh, at the company changed the way that they did things the projects that the company did became increasingly more complex and very interesting but like in a way that outgrew the tooling that we originally built so there needed to be changes uh, to their processes but explaining all of that always takes some time and patience and eventually i think people do understand at least the people i worked with were fantastic and they had on the business side too i mean like they they could see logic and follow through that okay this does help us uh, and help the bottom line in the end it's I, I think a bit of a balancing act between how do you do that and also satisfy the developers um being like yeah but of course like this is obvious uh, we need to deal with technical debt duh <laughs> i'd like to ask you so how do you feel your role changed as you sort of moved into different spaces so you were very much hands-on and then over time you were just sort of overseeing and where do you see that your distribution of your role changed and how did that sort of affect you and how did you adjust to that over time because it was a bit, it was a small company, so you would, no matter what the adjustment, it would I would assume have to be really quick, and you have very little time to onboard yourself from a knowledge perspective, and from a doing the work time perspective. So there was a rate of change there you had to really cope with. So 
that's one side. And the other side is sort of uh, how did the, you know, do you feel like what you did before, so that that non-tech field where it was able to help you do that faster or at least give you the edge where they give you a little less work to do? Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. I mean, you're very correct. My role has shifted a lot over the years. And it's a bit strange to to reflect on it. It, it almost like I don't think it dawned on me until you've mentioned it because it all felt very natural in a way. There were a lot of, at a small company, you have to do a lot of different tasks and often things that you don't want to do that are not in your job description and you don't expect to do, but we have to get things done and exist. So that's what you do. And I think the business education helped with that because there's, it kind of gave you like a rationale as to why you're doing the thing you're doing. Like you realize, okay, I'm going through an Excel spreadsheet. I'm checking numbers for analyst for some report that needs to go to a client. I'm doing that because there's four other people here and that client is uh, paying half of our salaries. There's good reasons for for the things that you're doing that, especially when you have like the bigger picture in mind, uh, you can kind of rationalize and justify for. But I think the role changing is super interesting too, because going to be more of a manager and a lead and doing things like interviewing uh, new hires, interviewing students. We, we uh, took co-op students. So I think for anyone outside of North America, that's like the equivalent of apprentices or interns uh, who are still studying, coming and working at your company for a short period of time. In the case of Synchronous, we had uh, co-ops for four to eight months. And I learned all of this on my own kind of thing. Plus, the business background helped because all of these guys were learning closure for the first time. And they might have some background from school that I think really helped. But most of them had to figure out this language for the first time themselves. And uh, on well, I guess with the help of me and the rest of the team. But the background of learning it yourself really helped there. Yeah. And anyways, I, yeah. I think I've gone a bit off track of your original <laughs> question. But yeah, that I think was a fun time. I really enjoyed the the changes and uh, even the changes up to my role nowadays. No, I, I think it does, does make sense because, you know, all the people that you were bringing in were also learning and changing. So there's sort of like a, an expectation to learn and change. So for you, it became quite natural. So you just took that mentality with you to all the other levels and you had enough background in, on both sides enough to give you a foundation to keep rotating forward and and it sort of speaks to what it's like to be in a culture that allows you and it sort of justifies change and, and, and encourages change it becomes natural and that's what a lot of people really want in their companies anyway so that they can change the market conditions so uh it just speaks to the value of that kind of culture and culture in general and what how it can affect people who uh, work in those companies so I, I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, well, everyone wants to learn and grow. I think that's almost like a human drive. We want m- many things like beyond the shelter and food and water. We need to live. Uh, learning is one of them. Right. So moving back a little bit to the tech side, I want to talk a little bit about Kit and why you did it and what it is. Uh, so Kit is a web framework that Dimitri and I 
started on, I think, in 2021, 2021. So the origins of it uh, come from the Luminous framework, which Dimitri built a long time ago and was like de facto the most known, I, I think, web framework for closure. Right. I remember I like one day at, at my new role here uh, at Deep Impact in Switzerland, uh, I started working on a new project. And as I would always do, I would spin up a Luminous uh, project as a template. But after the day ended, I realized I replaced almost everything in the template with something new. And I, my way of working had changed so much. And also the closure community evolved so much from what Luminous built on. There were like many things that were still the same and lots of the libraries that Luminous uh, provided I was still using, right. but in just very different ways. So that kind of led me to start thinking, oh, okay, this is something that I can adapt and maybe make my own template for my own personal use. All right. Uh, and that's kind of how Kit started. So I, I had a like bunch of backend libraries that played well with Integrant, which is the, the backing for Kit. And I was quite happy with it. I thought, oh, this is cool. And I think it was on a call one day, Dimitri and I were talking. And he, I told him offhand almost of this thing. He said, oh, that's really, I, I was thinking of like uh, redoing Luminous or something. We should work together on this. And that, that got us really excited because that led to some of the other ideas that are still works in progress, I think, but really cool things like code generation and the way that we have the templating to make it also work with like modern closure tooling. So there were like right. a lot of things that got us both excited and that really uh, gave us the push to refine it and get the documentation ready, like get it at a place where at least other developers can work with it, like build some examples and things like that. Right. That's, that's the origins of it. And now it's been out in the wild for, I think about a year or maybe, maybe less. I, I forget now it's, it's been a, some time. A year, I, I think you finished end of 2021, right? Yeah, so it must be then uh, about a year or so, okay. About a year, okay. <laughs> yeah, oh, time like flies. That. Yeah, time does fly. Okay, how are you feeling about it now? I love the community response. Uh, I love that there are people contributing to it on a regular basis, asking questions, uh, creating PRs, adding modules, things like that. Uh, right. it's, it's awesome seeing it grow. I also love it because I use it at work. Uh, so right. for us at Deep Impact, it's really important because it's the basis of a lot of our web services right. um, and helps us like make sure that they run stably and can scale horizontally and do nice things like surviving uh, DOS attacks. All right. Do you guys use uh, ClojureScript on the front end? No. So we mainly use TypeScript and React on the front end. Uh, that's why, front that's end? why I think this is maybe... In my opinion, one of the improvements we could have with Kit, we have a closure script module which like generates uh, the front end side of things, but by default, it's not really part of the template because at least at the time, I was really focused on backend development and right. the stability right. of like how do you scale on the how do you scale the backend and how do you do it efficiently. Right. Uh, so that's one part that I think we could improve on and make uh, a lot friendlier for for closure script developers. Are you one of the um, million people that has tried OpenAI and sort of that that new way? Have you seen anything in that space? 
uh, in chat GPT, you mean, or in chat GPT specifically? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's funny you're bringing it up. I think, uh, I think it was on Thursday. A friend of mine from uh, Toronto messaged me and he was absolutely like over the moon about this thing. And I'm, I don't know. I was kind of skeptical. I thought, oh, maybe this is just hype. It's you know, just another chat. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not like, too into some of the things that have come out of the tech world in the past couple of years. So I was like a little bit reserved. Right. But then I started using it on Thursday. I, I just started asking some basic things like, here's some text I want to send a client. Can you make it less technical? Right. And it gives you almost like 95% perfect thing that you should send in an email. Right. I was super impressed. And then like, you can even start refining it. You can ask, okay, make it like shorter. Uh, make it less right. formal or make it more formal or whatever. Uh, or even to generate code, it did. It's not always working code, but it's like a start. Right. And I, I, it's like the first time I think in a long time that I've been super excited about a new piece of tech. Right. I don't know yet what we can all do with it. It almost right. feels like we're on the cusp of something new and we're all trying to figure out where does this lead? Like, what do we do with this new right. technology? But right. it's it's genuinely impressive. I think it's always interesting. I always thought of closure as something that made matter programming easier. And then we have, you know, chat GPT that is sort of making matter programming easier. Yeah. So I'm always wondering to myself, you know, how do we get closure into that space in a way, right? Because closure is built on the idea that it, it can really do that. Like the whole structure of that language is very suitable to reconstructing itself and sort of improving on itself. So I just thought that was interesting. Now that this has come out, maybe the, the values that Clojure uh, sort of proposes won't be as foreign to the market as it was before. Yeah, and I mean, I think lots of features that we've seen in functional programming and Clojure specifically end up in the mainstream or have ended up already in the mainstream in the past, right. uh, well, since I started working with it. So like we have lots of uh, new functional features in java now uh in javascript also uh c++ yeah yeah Even? also and yeah. c sharp which is java also essentially on .net essentially. Uh, yeah <laughs> uh, so it's and i mean yeah also i think we talked uh, at one point about like react and uh things like reframe was redux before redux existed uh, and right. then some of the things that react's now doing is essentially like a reagent atom uh, so right, it's, exactly. It's cool. Well, you know what? Thank you so much for being on the on the program and like trying to talk to us about some of the things that you're doing. It'd be great if you could tell us where you uh, where we can reach you, where we can find you, and uh, some of the things that you're interested in doing aside from uh, Kit. Yeah, totally. Uh, so uh, you can find me on GitHub. Just search, I guess, for the Kit framework or uh, right. I don't know. Do I give you my GitHub URL? <laughs> if if that's what, if you feel comfortable, you know, it is yeah, open. Sure. It's it is easy to find. So yeah, uh, I mean, <laughs> you're just making it only slightly easier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So you can find me there. Dimitri and I have some plans for Kit. Uh, we were we've been talking about it recently, and I'm not going to announce any of them yet. But I, next year, I think we're going to push for some new features and development there. And outside of that. Genuinely, this chat GPT thing has ha has me over the moon. So I'm really trying to think of what do I want to do with this? Uh, and maybe I'll start playing around with that space as well. 
Thank you very much for being on. Thanks for taking the time. This is Nick Perrick. And, uh, you know, enjoy your winter. Yeah, thanks. You as well. <laughs> Take care. Thank you.